Our sermon text this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, the 26th chapter, verses 1 through 29. This can be found in the Pew Bible on pages 831 through 832 or in the bulletin. Matthew 26, 1 through 29. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, One of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray together. Lord, do we, do we dare ask you to come now and, and wrestle with us through your word? Do we dare ask you to lay hold of us And master us by your strength through your word. Do we dare invite 
such an encounter. And yes, in Jesus Christ, we are bold to ask for this very thing because we know and believe that here is how you will make your face shown to us. We long for these minutes to be pineal unto us where we see your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. We who are Christ's people long for this because we know that as we behold his face, we are being transformed into the very same image from one degree of glory to the next, that this is coming about through the Lord who is the Spirit. And we long for this same thing for those who are not yet in the kingdom and upon whom your wrath still remains because unless they see the face of Jesus Christ, they will not know salvation. So have mercy today, Father. In these ways we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, you know, um, words need to be growing in the Christian life. And if they're not, it's more than likely that we are not growing. And what I'm talking about here is words like God. Lord. Sin. Grace. Gospel. Father. And especially as we think this morning in preparation for the Lord's table, cross. Those words should be getting bigger. They should be getting stronger the longer you're a Christian. And in particular with respect to the cross, a cross that isn't growing uh, probably belongs to a Christian who isn't growing. And a Christian who isn't growing is a Christian who is not living according to the gospel and is in peril. So think about our favorite scientific object, the Hubble telescope. So we have the Hubble telescope now, which is a tool to observe the universe. And the more we observe the universe through the Hubble telescope, the more the universe grows, right? It gets bigger. It gets more complex. It gets more beautiful. But of course, what's happening is not that the the Hubble telescope is actually growing the universe. Our observations through the Hubble telescope are actually helping us grasp more accurately the true scale of the universe. And progress in the Christian life is like this, particularly with respect to the cross. Our progress in the Christian life doesn't doesn't enlarge the cross. What enlarges, what grows, is our grasp of the cross's significance. Can you imagine uh, a NASA astronomer testifying on Capitol Hill at a budget hearing saying, you know what, we actually are here to ask you to cut off all funding for NASA because we have learned enough about the universe. Well, can you imagine a Christian who is content with a cross that's not growing? 
Jesus, in our passage, is growing his cross or his disciples' understanding of the cross and therefore ours as well. He's growing their understanding of the cross as he's going to the cross. And he does this in a particular way by drawing their attention and ours very deliberately. And Matthew just reinforces this. By, by drawing a connection between Jesus' death and Passover. And that's not just some kind of happy coincidence. It is full of significance. That, <clears throat> that juxtaposition, that, that linkage between Passover and Jesus' death, uh, Jesus is using, as we'll see, to teach his disciples how to think his thoughts after him about his cross, how to rightly interpret it. He's helping them to prepare for the accurate interpretation of his cross. And for us, on this side of the cross, he's helping us as well to rightly interpret his cross. So this morning, I want to think with you about that connection that Jesus makes between the, the, the cro- his cross and Passover. And I want to do that under three headings this morning. The first is, our cross is too small. And the second is, our cross is too weak. And our cross, thirdly, is too safe. So what we're comparing this morning is our vision of the cross with Jesus's, okay? And the first thing we come up against is, as we think about our text and what Jesus is teaching us in the text, is that our cross is far too small. We think about the cross as a point in history. We might even think about it as the most beautiful point in history. We may think of it as a chapter we may even think of it as, as the, the, the most important chapter. But Jesus thinks about his cross, as we see from the passage, on a totally different scale. For Jesus, his cross is not a point in history. It's not even the most beautiful point in history. For Jesus, as he makes very clear, his cross is the point of history. Not just his history, but Israel's history, not just Israel's history, but the world's history, and not just the world's history, but our histories. Jesus has a very big vision of his cross, and he gives us three measures of the magnitude of his cross according to the meaning of Passover in the text. He does this in three interlocking ways, and the first one is that he draws a connection. You have to, we begin here, if you want to get a sense for how Jesus thinks about the bigness of his cross, we first have to see how emphatically he connects his cross to Passover. And he does it in verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's a really remarkable juxtaposition. Okay, Because Passover, he's, he's saying that the coming of Passover and the coming of his cross coincide And Passover was the annual feast. This was the high point in Israel's uh, national life together annually. It was the high point. And and time, the, 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 the Old Testament calendar, the Jewish calendar was reckoned according to when Passover happened. That's when time began for them. Their identity, their national identity. This, uh, this feast, this annual feast that commemorated two things. The, essentially, the creation of Israel as a people. This was their genesis. 
And in that Genesis, here's what happened. Right? God, you know, you know the story, but we, but we need to remind ourselves of it because by making this connection, Jesus is saying very big things about his death. In that, in that, in that Passover event, what, what is being commemorated is the, is the preservation of, of Israel. God, God passed over his people and struck down the firstborn in Egypt. And the the text in Exodus says that God personally struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the house of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon. God did that. Passing over his people in order to secure their liberation. It was a sobering, powerful display of God's glory and his jealousy for his honor and his love for his people, but it was not safe. And that connection Jesus uses that connection between his death and Passover, that he's, began, he's going to explain it further the deeper we get into the passage, but to just see there's a connection in his mind. After two days, the Passover will be here and I will be crucified, as though those things were totally connected. And what Jesus is doing through that connection is he is, he is linking his death. You've got to see this. He is linking his death making it as large as possible by linking it to the largest and most defining event that an Israelite could possibly think of. Now, of course, to the naked eye, a crucifixion looks like shame and failure. Jesus is laying claim already to the opposite of those things for his death. And so we go a little bit further. The second way Uh, that Jesus shows us the magnitude of his cross through this connection with Passover is in in the preparation that he makes for Passover. Notice in verses 17 through 19 how this theme of preparation comes up and gets emphasized. The disciples approach Jesus and they say, uh, where do you want us to make or how do you want us to make preparation for the Passover, for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus' answer uh, kind of reads them in to the, the reality that he's already been making preparation for this Passover, right? I mean, he, the instructions that he gives them uh, confirm that they're going to be stepping, they may have thought they were doing a good job, that they were ahead of the curve. But Jesus shows them he's already made preparations for this Passover to celebrate it with them because he, he connects them with a man in town who knows Jesus as teacher and who has already, through Jesus' prior arrangement that we know nothing about, agreed to make this space, this very valuable space available for them to celebrate Passover together. So Jesus has been anticipating this Passover. He's been preparing for it. But there's something even deeper than that that's going on. Do you notice in verse 18 how when he 
gives the disciples instructions for what they're to say to this man in Jerusalem who will make his room available, he, said, he uses this interesting phrase. He says, my time is at hand. Well, you could rush over that. And maybe you might even be tempted to think he's just talking about his cross, but even that would be a very striking way to describe the imminence of his death. Do you see what he's doing? He, this, is a, this is an assertion of ownership. This is an assertion of authority. This is an assertion of control. This intersection between Passover and his death belongs to him. He does not belong to it. It belongs to him. And then if you look even further at verse 24, Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. You see what's happening? He's saying that the Old Testament scriptures have already set and marked out his destiny and his death. So the preparation... The preparation for Passover that Jesus has made and that he is conforming to goes way, way, way beneath the surface. His death is not catching him off guard whatsoever. This intersection belongs to him. It is his servant. He is not its servant. So we see the vision of uh, the cross getting bigger and bigger, but here's where it gets most Uh, enlarged and that's uh, in verses 26 and 28 when Jesus uh, really and this is the most astonishing measure of the cross's uh, magnitude it's when Jesus offers his interpretation of the Passover meal in verses 26 and 28 and to appreciate the the gravity I mean let's just look at the words again now as they were eating Jesus took bread and after blessing it broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is, my, this is my body. Now, we're so used to hearing those words that we're not shocked by them. But it goes on, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now, that is absolutely shocking because this is the meal that commemorates the Passover, the the formation by God's sovereign power of Israel as a people and their deliverance out of slavery. And Jesus is laying claim. Do you see this? He's laying claim to all the elements of the Passover meal. And he's saying, those are about me. Now, have you ever been to a wedding where the best man rises to give his toast with an air of solemnity? at the reception, and he stands up in the middle of everyone on this wedding day that is not his wedding day, and he looks at the crowd and waits till everyone's quiet, and he says, today is my birthday. I've never seen that happen. And that would be totally out of place, right? we would think that he was hijacking the significance of the day because it's very clear that the wedding that's going on here is way more important than his birthday. Because the best man is a best man to serve, right, this greater celebration. 
Well, Jesus is standing in front of the constitutional, in the midst of the constitutional meal of Israel. And he is presuming to be the authoritative, not just the authoritative interpreter of its meaning, but the embodied authoritative interpretation of its meaning. And there's only one being in the universe who would have the authority to do that. Yahweh. Something important needs to be seen here. If you get the order wrong, you won't understand the cross. Jesus is not taking meaning from, he's not borrowing meaning from Passover to fill his cross up with significance. He is taking the meaning of his cross to fill Passover up with its true significance. You see, I I have a favorite commentator in the book of Matthew, and he just drove me crazy this week because every time he commented on verse, I'm not going to tell you who it is. Neener, neener. But every time he wanted to talk about verses 26 through 29, he kept saying that Jesus was engaging in a creative reinterpretation of the Passover meal. And every place he did, about four or five places, in the margin of the book, I wrote, no, exclamation point, no. Because that is not what is happening. This is not a creative reinterpretation of the Passover meal. This is the authoritative interpretation of the Passover meal. That is His death, his willing, substitutionary, penalty-bearing death that achieves the exodus of his people. The Passover in the book of Exodus is the little p Passover. The exodus that is achieved out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai is the little e exodus, Jesus is saying. The big p Passover the point of Passover, the point of Exodus, the big E Exodus is found in his cross. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. We celebrate this morning the Lord's Passover over his people. We celebrate the exodus that Jesus' death has secured for us. Our manumission, our emancipation, our liberation from slavery to sin, which Jesus has purchased at the cost of his blood and which he has achieved for us. Friends, our cross is way too small. But the good news is that Jesus has come into our midst this morning to proclaim the true magnitude of his cross. He does it through his word and by his table this morning in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's giving us this authoritative interpretation of his history, of Israel's history, and by extension, ours as well. Friends, you know how the Gospel of Matthew begins. We're going to look at this later. Jesus' name is given to Joseph by one of the angels, and that name is Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the promise at the beginning of the book of Matthew. Whatever it is that Jesus does, he is going to save his people from their sins. And now here we are. 
with this description of how he's going to do it. He's going to pour out his blood as the blood of the new covenant to purchase for many the forgiveness of sins. And now we're going to, we're almost at, and, and then we're almost at the last chapter of Matthew, the, the great commission where Jesus says that news is meant to be applied in the whole world. Go tell everyone in all the nations about my death. You know what Jesus is saying there, friends? He's saying that his cross isn't just the center of his ministry and his history, isn't just the center of Israel's history. He's saying that from God's perspective, the cross is the meaning of everyone's history. It's the measure of everyone's history. The measure that God is going to use. I don't know where you've come from. You know, we all have a past and we all have a future. I don't know where you've come from and I don't know where you're going, but I know this. You have an interpretation of your past and you have a map that you're working to head into your future. And I know this, that if the cross of Jesus Christ is not central to your interpretation of your past and central to your map toward the future, you're wrong. Because from God's perspective, the interpretation, the authoritative interpretation of every human being's past is that they have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and they need a savior to redeem them, to bear the penalty of their sins in their place, to reconcile them to God, and that the only provision for that reconciliation is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So whatever strands there are in your past that may look incoherent from God's perspective, they coherently cry out, for the necessity and centrality of his son's cross. And whatever plan you have for the future, friends, if the cross of Jesus Christ is not the center and guiding measure of your life going forward, then you do not have a map that is accurate because it doesn't conform to God's vision of your future. And now that you and I have come under the information, the truth about the gospel, we will be measured by that cross. God's going to judge every human being according to that cross. It is that big. Secondly, well, let me just back up. Don't wait. Don't wait. Do not wait. That news of how big the cross is should dominate every thought, every emotion, every affection you have. There is no agenda item on your existential checklist that should trump the call of Christ to come today. Right now. He is willing. The obstacle is not in his willingness. The obstacle is not in his ability. The obstacle is not in any way on his side of the summons. It's on yours. So what will you do? Do not treat the cross as if it were small. Because it's not. Secondly, 
our cross is not only uh, too small, it's also too weak. We, we not only shrink the cross, but we also weaken the cross. So we think of the cross as an offer, but Jesus knows that his cross is a consummated purchase. We think of it as an advertisement, as a billboard, but Jesus understands that his cross is an actual accomplishment. We tend to think of the, that, that what the cross proves is the potential availability of salvation to sinners. But when Jesus looks at his cross, he sees a cross so powerful that it actually tells the story of the certainty of salvation for certain particular sinners. We think that the cross shows that God is love in the abstract. But Jesus knows that he wielded his cross to deliver himself up in, concrete, in love for concrete particular sinners from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation in the world. That is exactly when Paul, when the Apostle Paul looked at the cross of Jesus Christ, here's what he saw. He didn't see love for sinners in general. He saw love for him. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And when heaven looks at the cross of Jesus Christ in Revelation 5, it doesn't say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you advertised a salvation to people from, uh, uh, that is potentially available to people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation on the earth. No, you purchased by your blood people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation on the earth, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God. See, that's how, that's how Jesus looks at his cross. That's what he sees. That's, how, that's the measure of the strength of his cross. Think about it. Friends, when Jesus looks at his cross, he, well, what we see is the, the fact that sinners can be freed. But when Jesus looks at his cross, he sees a cross that declares that sinners have been freed. Have been freed. Now, I want you to think about this, friends. If, if the strongest words we can use to describe Jesus' cross are offer, potential, availability, possibility, or contingent, then Jesus' name is a lie. If those are the strongest words we can use to describe the cross, potential salvation, available salvation, possible salvation, contingent salvation, then that means that Jesus' name is a lie. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, which is on page 807 in your pew Bible. It's really the thesis statement, I think, for the Gospel of Matthew. I just want you to see the words. I know you know this because we, we mention it a lot in worship, but I want you to see the words. She... This is the angel speaking to Joseph, right? She will bear a son, speaking of Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Why that name? For he will save his people from their sins. Now notice. Notice how certain and strong that promise is. 
He will save. Not he will make salvation available. And he will save his people. Not people in general. Not not simply show the love of God that is willing to save people, but he is actually going to accomplish. His mission will be, and he will succeed in it, his mission will be to save a people that the angel can already identify while he's still in the womb as his. Before he's ever preached a sermon. Now that is a vision of a very strong cross. And unless, if all we say about Jesus' cross is potential, if these are the strongest words, potential, available, offer, possibility, or contingency, then that name is a lie. But friends, it's not a lie. The name of Jesus is not a lie. The name of Jesus is the greatest promise that God has ever made. The name of Jesus is the greatest promise that God has ever made. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus means either Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Both work. And that is the greatest promise that God has ever made. And the cross is where he keeps it. When we look upon the cross, may God forbid that we ever imagine that it is sinners who make the cross effective. That it is sinners who ultimately wield its saving power. The saving power is not in the hand, the saving power of the cross is not in the hands of sinners. It is in the hands of Jesus Christ for the sake of sinners. And if you think of the cross as a place where there is this mighty, if you only think about it this way, that the cross is just this place where God did a mighty deed and the power of that accomplishment is only released based on your power to accept or refuse it, then you have a very weak cross, my friends. You don't have the cross of Jesus Christ. You have some cartoon. But look at, turn with me back to chapter 26 and look at verses 26 through 29, particularly verse 28. Let's look at how Jesus interprets his cross. Okay, so, so we had the angel describing what his name was, and now we're, now we're late into his life, right? And now we're going to see what, whether Jesus' own vision of his cross conforms to what God promised would be the mission of his life. Will he actually save sinners? Or will he just make salvation available? Will his cross be weak? Or will it be omnipotent? Look at verse 28 when he speaks of the cup. For this is is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's interpreting his death. He's interpreting his cross and he is saying that his death will not be in vain. 
that when he pours his life out voluntarily, no one will take it from him. He lays it down of his own accord. He is not a victim. He is a champion. He is, a, he is not being conquered. He is conquering. And his death will not be in vain because when he pours out his blood, guess what happens? It doesn't just, it, his intention is not simply that he will pour out his death so that the potential availability of forgiveness of sins could be available. No, he will pour it out for the forgiveness of sins and forgiveness of sins for many will actually be purchased through his death. That's a big, strong cross. Much bigger and much stronger than we tend to think about. Yes, by those measures, friends, our cross is way too weak. But the good news is that Jesus has come into our midst this morning. He's here by his spirit and from his word and from his table, from the sacrament, he is here to declare to all who are in him the true power and strength of his cross and that that because of his cross, all who stand in him, all who are in him now stand in a radically new relationship to God and to sin. Because his cross has secured, his cross is the Passover of all Passovers. And his cross achieves the exodus of all exoduses. I mean, think about it. The cross was the true and ultimate Passover. It was the ultimate meaning of Passover. What happened? What happened in Passover? God passed over in his judgment. He passed over his covenant people who were covered by the blood of the lamb, and his judgment fell on Egypt's firstborn. And what happens at Calvary, my friends? God's judgment passes over his people, over sinners, and lands not on Egypt's firstborn, but on heaven's firstborn. The Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, sheds his blood Jesus at Calvary isn't just the the stricken firstborn. He's the lamb whose blood builds a shelter for the people of God. He is the son of God who is the lamb of God who's absorbed, exhausted, and propitiated all the wrath of God against all the people of God. So friends, I want to ask you to look at the cross with me this morning and I want you, as you look at it, I want you to think about what story you read from that cross this morning. Because we all look at the cross and we all read a particular story from that cross. And the question is, are we reading the story that God is telling from the cross? Because that cross is the story of the Passover. The big P Passover. That cross is the story of the work of God in Jesus Christ to put forth a substitute to bear the holy judgment of God against the sins of his people. You know, in, in Exodus 12, when God gives instruction to Israel, one of the things he says after he gives the instructions about how the blood of the lamb is to be spread on the lintel of the door. He says this. It's really shocking when you think about it. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you. I thought the blood was a sign for Yahweh. 
that's not what Yahweh says. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you. And then he gives the meaning. A sign of what? That when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you. God, God, God doesn't need to see the blood per se. God is saying that the blood is a sign for the Israelites so they know that what the significance of that blood is is that God has passed over them in his judgment and caused that judgment to fall somewhere else. So friends, you see what the pastoral power of the cross is? God, when we look at the cross, you know, I keep pointing it to it there. It's not a relic. That's just an illustration. When we, so, so forgive me, okay? When we look upon the cross as it is set forth for us in God's word. We, it is a sign for us from God that he has passed over all who trust in Christ. His judgment has passed over us and landed on Jesus Christ. Fully, finally answering for all sins, past, present, and future for all who will ever repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Friends, do you realize, when you look at the cross, my friend, do you realize, do you read the story that all of God's judgment against you, against you for your sins, passed over you 2,000 years ago and landed in its holy fury on Jesus Christ? Because that's the story that God is telling from the cross. There's another story that he's telling from the cross this morning, and that is the story of an exodus, the exodus, the ultimate exodus. Jesus didn't die on the cross to draw us a map to freedom. He didn't die on the cross to promise us the availability of future liberation. He died on the cross and literally, by that death, omnipotently and eternally freed every one of his people from every aspect of sin. Sin's penalty. Sin's power. Sin's presence. Your liberation, if you're in Christ or you come into Christ today, your liberation from all those aspects of sin, its penalty, its power to dominate you, its presence, all of that has been purchased for you in full by Jesus Christ at Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's the story that God is telling from the cross of his son. Is that the story that you're reading? I mean, think about it, friends. Rome, we all know Romans 8.1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? 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 Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Not will set you free. Has set you free 
from the law of sin and death. You are not a slave anymore. If you are in Christ, you are not a slave. You have not received, Romans 8.15, you have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back again into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. Not you will receive the spirit of adoption as sons. You have received it. You have the spirit of emancipation in you if you have been emancipated by Christ. Today, You are not a slave. Which is why Paul says what he says in Romans 6.14. For sin will have or shall have no dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Oh friends, when you and I look at the cross this morning, are we reading the story from the cross that God is telling? Or are we imagining something far too weak? From the cross, about his cross, through his word, in the power of the spirit, through his table, Jesus is saying, as I was bearing your sins, he's saying this to his church, as I was bearing your sins in my body on the tree, I was bearing you on eagle's wings to bring you to myself. To free you. I was freeing you. So do you live in the freedom for which Christ has set you free, my friends? Or are you like the Egyptian, or excuse me, are you like the Israelites in the wilderness who are so dominated by those memories of leeks and garlic? that any time something becomes hard, you want to turn around and go back there because that's the life you know. You, You know, we're all addicts to sin. And we think like addicts. And the way addicts think is that they think that the thing that is killing them is actually their only viable survival strategy. And Jesus is saying, that logic is destroyed when you look upon my cross. So keep looking upon my cross. Finally, the cross that we deal with is far too safe. Our cross is way too safe. Our cross has been tamed and domesticated. It's a model of politeness. It has good table manners. It it always uses an inside voice. It never interrupts us. It never barges into our conversations, never asserts itself, never turns the conversation into an uncomfortable direction, never speaks unless spoken to, never never contradicts us, and never imposes demands on us. It's just kind of there as a security blanket, as a good luck charm. But you know, the the real cross, once you leave cartoon land, once you leave Main Street of the Magic Kingdom and you step out into the real world that is measured by the cross of Jesus Christ, what you discover is that the real cross is not safe at all. It's not safe. It purchases safety for us, but it is not safe. And I know I need to explain that. And I I think the best way to explain it is by thinking a little bit more about the connection that Jesus draws between his his cross and Passover, his cross and the Exodus in our passage. I mean, what we discover is that Jesus' cross isn't tame. Jesus' cross is ferocious. It's ferociously jealous. Think about Passover and the Exodus. 
those were not safe. I mean, you, you just walk yourself, read Exodus and, and read, read through the plagues and, and read through the, 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 the final plague and read through the night of Passover and read through <clears throat> the passage through the Red Sea. Read through those things and keep asking yourself, is this safe? Well, this has felt safe. Yes, it's purchasing my freedom, but, but is it safe? And it would never feel safe. And you know what wasn't safe about it? It wasn't safe because of the God who was in it. I mean, think about it. How would you feel if the God who destroyed Egypt through the plagues was calling you into relationship with him? that might be really good, but that would not feel safe. It's like Aslan, right? So how much more the cross? How much more is the, the jealousy that God demonstrated through the Passover and the Exodus, his jealousy for his holiness and his jealousy for the welfare of his people. That's what, that he is just, it's a ferocious jealousy when you think about it. He destroys Egypt to bring his people out to himself. He's so holy and he loves his people so intensely, he is willing to go to any length in order to secure their freedom and bring them to himself. So how much more when the God of the Passover reveals himself in Jesus Christ to be the God who is Passover, when the God of the Exodus reveals himself in Jesus Christ to be the God who himself is the Exodus of his people, how much more then do those holy jealousies get displayed? We don't think about this enough. But the New Testament is filled with thoughts of this, friends. There is a jealousy that runs, a holy jealousy Well, a jealousy for holiness that runs through the New Testament with, if you have eyes to see it, with great intensity. It is a a holiness that grace isn't an exception to, but that grace is the fuel and foundation of. Grace is, Charles Spurgeon said that grace is not the handmistress of of sin, Excuse me, excuse me, I got it backwards. Grace is not the apologist for sin. It is the handmistress for holiness. And that's exactly the summary of the teaching of the New Testament. That, that's what happens in the Passover and the Exodus. God brings his people to himself, and what does he do? He says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that doesn't change when we get to the New Testament. Friends, for the recipients of this Passover and the recipients of this Exodus, the theme of holiness inside the church of Jesus Christ is magnified in the New Testament. It is not diminished. That's why the writer to the Hebrews has to say or says, strive in Hebrews 12, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's speaking to Christians. And and he says, just a few verses later, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. When Jesus stands up in the midst of Revelation 3 and has a message to the church at Pergamum, he says what he's going to do because of the unholiness of the church in Pergamum, and he says, and all the churches will know 
that I am he who searches mind and heart. All the churches will know that, including ours. Oh, friends, do not think that holiness does not matter. Jesus Christ is searching every mind and heart in this room. And he is jealous for the fruits of his Passover and his exodus in the lives of every one of his people. Did you hear our call to worship this morning from 1 Peter? You shall be holy, for I am holy. That is why Darren's going to fence the table this morning. That is why in the, in the church in Corinth, there were people dying for trivializing the Lord's Supper. That's why Ananias and Sapphira died in Acts chapter 5. But there's another side, and it is the love, this, this ferocious love. See, because God didn't just exhibit his holiness in the Exodus and the Passover. It's not just his holiness at the cross. I mean, how holy must he be, my friends? I mean, we should know better than anyone else how holy God is because it took nothing less than his son's incarnation and crucifixion in order to answer for the sins of his people. We know better than Israel did. And how much better we know his love and his ferocious jealousy for our eternal welfare because of the cross. Here is a love that pursues, that that spares no expense, that goes to the end, that never relinquishes, that never compromises, that, that never gives up, that never lets go. Here is a love that for our good pursues us all the days of our lives. And while it is the best of all loves, it is not in any sense safe Oh, to be loved like that. To be loved with a love that is never indifferent. To be loved with a love that isn't superficial. To be loved with a love that holds nothing back. That imposes no limits on itself. My friends, that is paradise and our greatest terror at the same time. Because you cannot be the recipient of that kind of love and not be changed. You cannot be the recipient of that kind of love and, not, <clears throat> and, and imagine that you can impose boundaries on it, either on what it will do for you or what it will require of you. And so, friends, may we see, and may God grant that we will see the cross at its true size this morning, at its true strength, and its true fearsomeness Because a cross that is safe is a cross that can't save. Let's pray. Lord, we come now and we acknowledge that for all of us, the cross is too small, too weak, and too safe. And we pray that you would bring our thoughts about your son's cross into conformity with his thoughts about his cross. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.